Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. When you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. Before we read, I just want to tell you, I I love coming up here each week. I love the privilege of opening up God's Word, and especially the weekly anticipation that God is going to speak to us through His Word, and the weekly uh, excitement that uh, we're going to find in every passage of Scripture God's glory, but also His agenda for us. His agenda for us today. That's what we're going to see. We're going to read Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Lord God, thank you that this is your word. Thank you, Lord, that you spoke it, you apply it into our lives by your spirit. We pray, Lord, today that we would not take offense at you or anything about you, or anything you do, but that we would truly be in line with your will, your agenda, your desires for us. So Lord, we ask that you would change us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, and that basically you would have your way with us, whatever you want, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And I pray that way because I believe what I just prayed. That, that God does something in the lives of those who believe when they're exposed to His Word. And what I want you to see today is that unbelief responds to Jesus in a certain way. And the people of Nazareth are textbook cases here. And Jesus, though, responds in the best way. And that is a model for how we should respond to unbelief. Today we're moving from the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, up through verse 52, to the first of five responses to Jesus that are seen um, starting at Matthew 1353 and then going through to the end of chapter 14. The first response here in these verses we just read, Matthew 13:53 through 58, is the rejection of Jesus by those in his hometown of Nazareth. Now as Matthew chapter 13 ends, 
Jesus finishes instructing his disciples with parables and then returns to his hometown. And what we're going to see in this passage, and what I want you to see is that, yes, it is hard to know how to respond to unbelief, and we face it every day. But unbelief calls for a Christ-like response, and that's exactly what we see in this passage. Nazareth is where he went. It doesn't say this here in this passage, but it does elsewhere in the Gospels. We know very clearly that Nazareth was his hometown. Now, during his ministry years, Capernaum became Jesus' city, but during his Galilean ministry. But Nazareth was where he was from. And when he went to Nazareth, he went into their synagogue and he taught on the Sabbath. They were initially impressed by his miracles, by his power, by his authoritative teaching, but they rejected him. They would not recognize him as God, only as the carpenter's son, only as the son of Mary and a brother to those they knew. Now, Jesus wasn't surprised when this happened. Jesus wasn't shocked by this. Nothing shocks Jesus. Nothing shocks God. But as a result of their lack of faith, what we see is that Jesus didn't perform many mighty works there. Not a lot of amazing things happened there. And it was pointed that it was because of their unbelief. So what we're going to do today is see two things. One, how unbelief responds to Jesus and then how Jesus responds to unbelief. So the first is how unbelief responds to Jesus. The, the response of unbelief. Now you have to see this. You've got to see this because it starts, it starts off all right. I mean, as you're reading this passage, it's sounding good. But it goes south quickly. Begin with me at verse 53 again. When Jesus finished the parables, he departed from there. Let's remember about parables. We, we took nine weeks talking about parables Uh, at this point in time we know a lot about parables we've been exposed to parables of the kingdom parables is a greek word meaning to throw alongside of where you place common occurrences next to spiritual truths to make a a significant point spiritually the two reasons that jesus used parables which was shown earlier in this chapter was first to make spiritual truths clear to those who believe and secondly, to hide spiritual truths to those who don't. So he's doing this. He's going. He's leaving. He's, the parables are done at this point. And verse 54 says, He came to his hometown and began to teach in their synagogue. So, so far, so good. Everything seems to be going great. And, and they were even astonished, which is, well, of course, it's, it's Jesus. Of course you'd be astonished at his teaching. And then they, then they responded with words. They said things. And they said, and this could be a great thing, they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? I mean, wouldn't you want to know? Jesus finishes the parables. He goes to this remote hill village of Nazareth and begins teaching in their synagogue the living word teaching the written word By the way, synagogue means gathering place. A place that was the center of Jewish community life. It was where they assembled. The Jewish law was administered there. Discipline was 
was carried out there and teaching was given there. It was in a significant pl- place in their daily life and in their, in their common life together. It was one of the places that Jesus explained the Old Testament and how he is the expected Messiah who would free people from their sin. And now, by the way, just a little aside here, it was, it was a common practice for Jesus to go to the, to the synagogue during, for gatherings. And usually we think of uh, Hebrews 10.25 as our example for not neglecting the assembly of the believers, our, our, uh, our gathering together, not, don't neglect to meet together. But, but Jesus' practice of going to worship with the people of God is our prime example for not missing these gatherings when we get together. But the Bible says that when Jesus began teaching, they were astonished. They were amazed, not only by the, the depth and the insight of his teaching, but also the authority with which he taught. The scribes who usually taught them would rely upon the, the authority of, of greater scribes from the past, from their rabbis, their famous rabbis. But Jesus, as we know, uh, spoke with his own authority, the authority of God. So they asked this question, and it seems, it seems so appropriate. It seems so, so sincere at, at, at first glance. Where did this man, this man get this wisdom? Where did this man get these mighty works? Wisdom, by the way, are words from the mouth of God. Mighty works here are miracles by the hand of God. They were hearing and seeing evidence of God. Now the giveaway here is in the words, this man. Where did this man get these things? It's alluded to in verse 54, 55, and 56. It's going to be repeated in, in this way. This man. This was not a normal question of curiosity. We ask questions all the time. and they, Questions are good. You need to ask questions. We encourage our kids to ask questions. But this was not a normal question of curiosity. What it carries with it is an element of contempt for Jesus. This man. Where did, where did this man get the authority? He grew up here. Who's he? Who is he to be claiming these things. It was an insult. It was a put down. So the first thing that you see that unbelief does is that it rejects God's ways. Unbelief rejects God's ways. The source of Jesus' power had been debated, and in a sense they want to open up the debate once more. Here was an untrained local boy He wasn't supposed to be doing the things he was doing. The Jewish leaders had said he he was in league with the devil. To them, his actions were unpardonable. To, To them, he had committed the unpardonable sin, which is why Jesus had to clear that up several times in this gospel of what that really is. But for Nazarenes, it was hard to believe that a local boy could be the Messiah. Where did this man get this wisdom? 
and this, these mighty works. Initially enthused, seeming to admire Jesus, their unbelief betrayed them. They rejected the plain tr- proof of God's word and works shown by Jesus. You see, those who reject God's word and works reject God himself. You know someone who's rejecting God's word? You know someone who's rejecting the things that God is doing? They are rejecting God. Now the response that Jesus got was a lot like what he got in an earlier visit to Nazareth. Some think that this is an actual parallel passage, but most likely this is a This is an earlier scene in Luke chapter 4. Go there with me. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, we see Jesus coming to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, there it is, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He did that regularly. And he stood up to read. So we're going to get on on, on this earlier trip. We see what Jesus would do. He would get up and read. And in this particular instance, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place that was written this. This was Isaiah 61, by the way. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He, he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls the scroll up and he gives it back to the attendant and he sits down. And everyone in the synagogue is looking at him watching him to see what he's going to do next because he just read from the prophet Isaiah speaking of the coming Messiah and Jesus it says began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing shocking blasphemous to them but they were speaking well of him And then he said a few more things. He said, you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. And what we heard you do in Capernaum, do there. Do here in your hometown as well. Challenging him. And then he said, a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown. And he used the example of Elijah and and Elisha. and, and, And he says some things to them that really got him down deep. And it says that every one who heard these things was filled with wrath. They were in a rage. And so they basically tried to push him over a cliff. They tried to push him out of town and over a cliff. Now Matthew doesn't give such detail. Because Matthew likes to summarize. But Matthew also... doesn't show that they were trying to kill him. It could be that in this second visit to Nazareth, their rage had somewhat subsided. Jesus is gaining more and more credence and 
even popularity, and, but they still didn't believe. What happens next? More questions. It wasn't just, hey, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? But now they went for the jugular of his family and his occupation. Is this not the carpenter's son? Hey, his mom is Mary. His brothers are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Three of those not to be confused with disciples of the same name. And his sisters, they're not all, aren't they just right here with us? Not named, but known. Son of the carpenter. Carpenter is a Greek word for one who was a craftsman or a worker, a, a general term. It could refer to someone who worked in stone or wood or metal. Our word architect comes from this word. When Jesus was growing up, there was a, a big demand for carpenters to rebuild the, the city of Sephorus, which had been burned and its survivors had been made slaves. Not surprising that Joseph was a carpenter. And his mother Mary. And his younger brothers and sisters. Something you might not think often about, but Jesus lived with parents, brothers and sisters in family life. Daily family life. He would experience its joys and its troubles. He would experience everyone getting along and then wills colliding. Except for one big thing. Sinlessness. Now his brothers and sisters weren't. He was. I'm not sure what that caused on how they viewed him. But we do know this. I think it's comforting that he lived with others just like us. And our example in all of life is Jesus, especially, including family life. But they wrap the questions up with a final jab to the gut. Where did this man get all these things? Look, people have questions. Questions are good. But for some, these questions went beyond curiosity to contempt. As a result of that, we see what unbelief also does. What unbelief also does is confuses God's identity. It confuses who God is in people's minds. It magnifies some things out of proportion and minimizes some things to the point where they're eclipsed or ignored completely. They were disdaining Jesus, and, and in the process, they confused things. Here's what they were doing. They were magnifying his humanity over his deity. The son of the carpenter. Son of Mary. Brother. To those brothers and sisters. They didn't say anything about his birth. They didn't say anything about all the amazing things they had seen him do. They're pinpointing his humanity. They were camping out on his humanity and rejecting his deity. And by the way, Nazareth error was not that they said Jesus was human because it's true he was a man but they thought he was too human to be to be God because he's also God and they couldn't get that they they missed the point of the incarnation that God became a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth they would not accept Jesus as God with us Emmanuel 
So unbelief confuses God's identity. Unbelief also refuses God's rule. It refuses to to yield to the lordship of Christ. Verse 57, we read that they took offense at him. Took offense. Literally, they would not believe in him. Not surprising. Jesus is a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But they were offended. Literally, they stumbled at him. They were repelled by him. They turned against him. For them, it was an unpardonable scandal. It was a stumbling block for Jesus not to be common like them. Interesting that this word, every time this scandalizo is used in Greek, it's always Jesus that's getting stumbled on. They couldn't see beyond that young man that grew up among them. They figured that one so ordinary couldn't possibly be the promised Messiah. And so they refused to honor him as God. They would not believe. They went into bold rebellion against him. It's really easy to, take, to give the people of Nazareth either a pass or totally condemn them. And I think our response ought to be somewhere in the middle. Uh, John Calvin said this, the unbelieving are not simply hindered by ignorance. So you don't give them a, a full-on pass. Oh, they didn't know any better. Oh, yeah, they did. But they deliberately seize hold of offenses so that they may not follow where God calls. That's the nature of unbelief. They refuse to honor him and yield to his lordship. So Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. It was a proverbial saying close to what we would know as as, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. The familiar loses significance. They knew Jesus too well as a boy and a young man from their own town. And they concluded that he was nothing special. But Jesus said a prophet is not without honor. Literally, it means a prophet is not always despised. Not always despised. The the word here is used in the same word. It's uh, atomos, and it's used two times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 that he was despised and rejected of men, that he was despised and we held him of no account, without honor, despised. They would not honor Jesus as God. Many of us have been in the same place. For a long time in my life, now I'm at the point in my life where more than half of my life has been as a believer in Christ, a a born-again believer in Christ, but uh, there were... 20 years of my life, the first 20 years of the life, I, I did not honor Jesus as God. See, whoever is offended at Jesus is either rejecting him or dangerously close to doing so. And it's way too close to the fire for comfort. But unbelief refuses God's rule. One last thing we see in this passage that unbelief does. It's actually, it doesn't do it. It happens to unbelief. It happens. Unbelief forfeits God's blessings. Forfeits God's blessings. In verse 58, 
we read that he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief forfeits God's blessings. Christ preached at Nazareth, his own country. He lived there almost 30 years, from a baby to a man. It was a small place, maybe 1,600 to to 2,000 people. Literally everyone would have known him. And he had been gone for a while. He had gone from unknown carpenters to a, a famous person in the Holy Land. The Nazarenes must have wondered as they heard of his works and his powerful influence of his teaching, what is going on? Most probably felt some natural hometown pride that a local boy made good. Something, someone from their own town had risen to prominence. You know how it is. Most, most cities, they put up a sign, you know, home of. Remember once in Oklahoma, I, I stayed in the hometown of... of uh, Famous country singer. I've stayed in the hometown of two famous country singers, by the way. I just thought of that. They probably felt some natural pride inside uh, the good kind that said, wow, someone from our place is, is prominent. But see, in some, it was tainted by other feelings like jealousy and envy and sinful pride. Not many miracles because of their unbelief. Now, it doesn't mean that all didn't believe in Nazareth. But most didn't believe in Nazareth. I spent time in Irian Jaya, Indonesia, where in the 1950s and 1960s, they had what was called people, movement, people movements to Christ, where the, 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 the chief of a tribe would would finally give permission, basically, to the tribe's people to turn from animism to Christ. And, and whole slews of people, reams of people, whole tribes would come and, and burn their, what they called fetishes, the things they thought were God, their bows and arrows and their other stone axes and what have you, and they would burn them in huge heaps and fire of fire to say we're turning from that to Jesus. But in a people movement to Christ, not every one of them truly believed, but everyone went along for the ride. But here what you have in Nazareth is a, a people movement away from Christ. You know, a mob mentality, a group mentality. You're around people who are a certain way for long enough Bad company corrupts good morals. So here's an example of a people movement away from Christ. The groups are influential. It's one of the reasons you want to be spending significant time with people who are, who are like-minded in Christ, who are moving forward in Christ, not backwards. Not many miracles because of their unbelief. Now, this does not mean that his power was was lessened due to their unbelief. He had the power to do whatever he wanted, anytime he wanted. But here, he did not have the will to do it because they rejected him. Mark chapter 6, the parallel passage to this, it says that he marveled at their unbelief. Marveled at it. 
amazed by Nazareth's reaction. Not surprised that they did not believe, but that they could do so while claiming to know so much about him. Faith should have been their response. Not many. But some. Some. But for most, their unbelief robbed them. It did not strip Jesus of his power. Unbelief hinders life. It blocks Christ's blessings. They reap what they sowed. They forfeited blessings. That's what happened. So now, let's see how Jesus responded. Let's see how we should respond to unbelief. Let's see how Jesus responds to unbelief, and in that we can revel in his glory and respond in the same way, seek to respond in the same way. So what did Jesus do in response to unbelief? And, and, and then we'll be thinking, be thinking then, what do I do when I encounter unbelief? You know, what do you do when someone resists and rejects and refuses and then reaps the reward of their choices? You know, don't be shocked. Don't be, don't be uh, surprised. Don't be sucked into the whole thing and retaliate. But do as Jesus did. So what did he do? Now, we do know this. Unbelief calls for a Christ-like response. So let's look at Christ's response. What did he do? The first thing you see him do is, is keep preaching and teaching the word of God. It was his practice to go into the synagogues. He he. His own country rejected him once, yet he came to them again. They wanted to kill him the first time, push him over a cliff, and he shows up in town again and stands up in the synagogue. I love it. I love it. Unafraid, of course. He knew his time. He knew where he was going. He knew he was heading to Jerusalem. We kept preaching and teaching the word of God and that's, that's like, like Jesus that's what we need to do when we encounter unbelief is keep preaching and teaching God's word 2 Timothy 4 preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction Romans 1.16, not ashamed of the gospel it's God's power for everyone who believes keep preaching and teaching God's word what happens with that and, and what, ha- what needs to be present with that is that the gospel must be central in our lives. See, if the gospel is not central in, in your life, then Jesus isn't central in your life because Jesus is all about the gospel. Here, here's what Jesus did. He, he listened to them. He kept preaching and teaching the word, but then, then he listened to them and heard what they had to say. He took every question. And he didn't seem to get in a big fight with them. They were given fighting words and he didn't engage. When unbelievers divert the discussion away from Jesus and the gospel and and even attempt to discredit him and his followers, we need to listen like Jesus did and then refocus on truth. Listen and refocus on truth. That's what Jesus did. He heard their questions and then he refocused on the truth. In this case, it was a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. He 
weigh realities. We hear things and it doesn't mean it's true. We've got to weigh realities. What else did Jesus do? He, he listened to them and he, he heard what they had to say and, and then he didn't blast them. He didn't lose it. He answered gently and humbly. We must do the same rather than lashing out, rather than quietly living in resentment when unbelief gets personal and even insulting to us. We, we by the Spirit, must answer gently and humbly. You don't see Jesus stirring up the pot. What happens in my life is what I'll do is when I encounter unbelief and I, I engage, I will, uh, I'll, I'll say something or do something and then I have to turn around and apologize for it. That does obscure the gospel. It just has that quirky way of doing that. Answer gently and humbly. Be ready always, 1 Peter 3, to give an answer for the hope that's within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Humility. And remember this, 2 Corinthians 2, no, it's 12, verse 10. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. God's grace is sufficient for us. One of the reasons why for a long time I wouldn't be able to do this is because for too long I was, I was um, living in a state of sadness and guilt because of my sin. And what I found is that if you live in a state of sadness and guilt because of your sin, then you fail to real, realize the fullness of forgiveness in Christ. You don't walk in freedom in Christ if you wallow in what you used to be. But to answer gently and humble, we've got to understand we are weak, but God is strong, and, and He is Lord. We are not, and, and so we don't have to be in control of the situation. He is. We're going to be used as a tool in His hands, and that leads to one other thing that Jesus did. He didn't just keep preaching and teaching the Word and, and then listen and, and refocus them on truth and do that humbly and gently, but there was something else that, he, that you see here that you have to dig for a little bit. The good, you know how it is. Good stuff. You get some ice cream, you know, and it's got the goodies in it. You've got to dig in there and get it if you want it. Or you can wait till it gets scooped up, I realize. I dig. Here's what Jesus did. He exercised compassion. Compassion. Christ was in his hometown. Everybody loves their hometown. Seneca said this, the philosopher Seneca. Everyone loves their hometown not because it's beautiful, but because it's theirs. The rejection of him, no doubt, was in a, a cause, as Carson puts it, for much grief and frustration for Jesus. Of course. But not in the way that we would think. Not in the way of taking it personally as we would, but grieving over their lostness. Grieving over their depravity. Grieving over their sinfulness. See, Jesus looked upon the multitudes with compassion because they were sheep with, like sheep without a shepherd. Here was the good shepherd, the shepherd and guardian of, of souls being pushed aside by people who knew not what they were doing. Compassion. Jesus feels with and for people his compassion his mercy wants to alleviate the misery brought on by sin but he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief he wants to extend mercy but 
they would not have it. By the way, compassion isn't weak. Compassion is strong. It gets personal. And it makes tough and painful decisions when necessary. Here's where the compassion is shown right here in the last verse in in not doing many miracles there. Full-on compassion. Full-on mercy. So they would not incur more judgment upon themselves by receiving further truth and rejecting that as well. Maybe it shows that Christ limited his, His ministry to them as an act of mercy so the exposure to more truth would not result in more hardening of their hearts and put them in line for more judgment and condemnation. That's mercy. Sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do is shake the dust off your feet and move on. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. The scriptures say, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. See, compassion is the ability to enter into the pain, to feel for them, to extend a helping hand, to show mercy, to, to seek to alleviate suffering. It's what inspires people to go and to help people when tragedy strikes and to help total strangers and even to risk their life for them. It's godlike. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful. That's compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all He has made. Christ was in His own country. And even though His treatment this time was almost the same as before, scorned and spited, even though they expressed contempt for Him, even so, Christ does not reject rejectors at their first word, but repeats his offers to those who have often rejected him. He came back to Nazareth. All day long, the scriptures say, God has held out his hand to a to an stubborn and obstinate people. They I would have done this for you, but you were not willing, he said. He did not do many mighty deeds. Not that he could not, he would not. See, God wants people to, to cooperate with him. And that's kind of the heart of the covenant. All things are possible with God, but you must be willingly going with God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, but only to those who believe. You don't believe, you don't get saved. But we could not keep covenant with God, so He did so for us. It gives faith to believe. So how do you deal with unbelief on a daily basis? Bottom line, how do you do it? You walk by faith. You walk by the Spirit. You trust Jesus. You make sure you're under God. See, I know that I can respond in faith to Jesus because He dealt with my unbelief. And therefore, I can look at those in, in a state of unbelief compassionately, not condemningly. See, unbelief calls for a Christ-like response. 
Our response to those who actively resist surrendering their lives to Jesus is crucial. It's cross, cross-like. Come to a crossroads. What are we going to do? They need, by the way, what many of you already do daily. You give a persistent, intent, humble, loving interaction from a person who loves Jesus. That's what unbelievers need. You lift up Jesus. You lift him up. It's like this. If I can't lift up Jesus in a, in a given situation, I'm not focused on Christ in that situation. I'm focused on me. If I'm doing all things in the name of Christ, my Savior, my Lord, he will be very conspicuous. He will, the, the aroma will be impossible to ignore. The smell will be impossible to ignore. One last place. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter two, uh, 2, verse 14. Here's what God does. Paul says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. We smell bad to unbelievers. But to the other, a fragrance from life to life. We we smell so sweet. Smells have staying power. Smells stick with you. You remember the good ones you Remember the bad ones. But resolve to to respond to unbelief in in God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-focused ways and you will leave a good aroma. You'll leave a Christ aroma. Some may call it bad, but it is good. It is good. The Christ-like response puts people in in the way of seeing and hearing the gospel. See, Christ's response was the cross. And so you can rejoice that a holy God met your need at the cross. So you lift up Jesus because God lifted Jesus up at the cross. Jesus said, a prophet's not without honor. Well, one who speaks for God for the sake of others is honored by God and sooner or later by man as well. After they've died and petty differences get set aside, they say, wow, a prophet has been in our midst. Think about Philippians chapter 2. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, taking the form of of a servant, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him, honored him above all others, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be honored. He was despised. He was forsaken. He was held in contempt so that you could experience what you forfeited by sin and now honor Him. In Christ, you're able to seek God's ways and acknowledge His identity and yield to His rule and receive His blessings. And as you persistently preach and teach and intently listen and refocus and humbly and gently interact and love compassionately 
you won't condemn but you'll bless you won't retaliate but you'll yearn for their salvation so that they too may experience the joy the joy let's pray Lord God we thank you for what you have done thank you Lord for Christ's death once for all the just for the unjust that that he might bring us to God thank you Lord for those who have been rescued by responding in faith and Lord thank you ahead of time for those who will be rescued as they respond in faith we pray in Jesus name Amen